I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. Not many individuals can boast to having two major careers travelling in tandem with equal impact, especially with the longevity that each has had and indeed continue to have. And apart from being a fireball of energy and a truly unique person in every sense, my guest today is a legend as a musician and a remarkably versatile actress. Generation-wise, we've more or less grown up together in that I remember when she exploded onto our TV screens with such creativeness and talent that it felt as though I'd been catapulted onto another planet. Well, actually, one of my brothers, who has a very eclectic taste in music, was very much entranced by three female pop artists in particular. Well, when he was a young lad, obviously, but one was Kate Bush, Susie Quattro, and, of course, Toya Wilcox. And I have to say that I also shared his sentiments and never in my wildest dreams would I ever have thought that I would be sitting here now having this opportunity to chat with one of these legendary ladies. Yes, Toya Wilcox has shown us time and again what listening to yourself and following what you believe in really means. Toya is used to going against the expectations of society, and for that, and indeed many other reasons, I'm really excited to spend this wee while chatting with her. Well, Toya, you know, it's kind of an understatement to say that you really inspired me, because you really, really did. And I think what was just so intriguing as I was growing up and just seeing you blossom on our screens was how you brought all of these different art forms together and it just felt right <laughs> you, you know what I mean there was just such an incredible creative spirit there thank you very much for saying that and it's very generous of you to say that at the time it was quite a, a battle of my sheer will and determination against an industry that liked people to be really in a compartment. Mm. So when I started at the National Theatre at the age of 18, at the end of 1976, I was at the National at a time where actors were not allowed to do voiceovers. If you wanted to be taken seriously, you wouldn't dream of doing an advert. And some stage actors would not even dream of doing TV drama. There was very much division between every style of acting and music. And I think what I did, I knew from a very early age, my mother took me to see The Sound of Music about seven times in three <laughs> months when I was about seven years old, and I just knew that the two should never be separated, and that was singing, and the joy of expressing yourself like a bird in the trees as a songstress, and the joy of expressing yourself through movement and acting. For me, they very much went together, but I also need to add, I never felt that I wanted to be a stage musical artist. My idea was to have two completely separate careers. It's so interesting that because in a way, you know, when we 
when we're at school as infants, you know, bringing all of the art forms together is so natural. You know, we're, we, we sing, we dance, we draw, we, we, you know, say things, build stories and, and put little words and sentences together and so on. And so all of the expression is this kind of milking pot. And it seems extraordinary that then that isn't even cultivated more as we get older. But in fact, it, it sort of recedes into this kind of very odd... I- I think it's time and space. I had a phenomenal music teacher and I believe she taught maths as well. She was called Miss Nelson. And I was one of those typical dyslexics at school where I peaked and troughed, peaked and troughed. I kept um, I kept excelling and being top of the class and then falling right back to behind the class. And by, by the time I was 11, I couldn't peak again within that system but what Miss Nelson did was she realized that I was dyslexic at a time when dyslexia wasn't recognized within the school system and she realized I had a vast understanding a natural body understanding of music so she would push the desks to the side of the walls during everyone's class and put on Holst Planet Suite And I would just be in the centre of the room dancing furiously in a a state of emotional ecstasy Mm. because that music was informing me so much of a great story and it helped me with my maths and everything. So I've always had that gift of people recognising that movement for me is a language as much as music is a language. Yeah, that's that's interesting because in a way, I suppose, everything is a language. Yes. You know, when you think about it, I mean, I look out the window now and there's just tiny little flakes of snow coming down. I mean, that's a language because it informs you that, well, might be a good idea to put a jacket on or a or a hat on or a um, or just watch your your footing as you go out in case you, you fall flat on your face or something. I mean, it's giving you a message. But it's interesting in that the the planets were used because. I suppose, and tell me if I'm wrong, that it wasn't stated that that's a classical piece of music. It was classical in my eyes because I grew up with the Beatles, Tommy Steele. Okay. I grew up with Tom Jones and and the planets for me was this luxurious feast. Mm. Uh, There was no introduction about it being classical at all it was just this wonderfully visual piece of music Mars you can express Hulse Mars so beautifully and then you get Neptune and then you get Jupiter and they're so poetic they're so incredible and I recognize that above everyone else in the class Mm. and Miss Nelson realized that she was unlocking a potential in me that was about to be lost once I went into the senior school. Mm. Uh, and that was quite tragic because it did get lost. And I didn't find that in myself again until I heard Mark Bolan and David Bowie. And suddenly you had these incredibly visual artists who were so out on a limb musically that it 
it beckoned me in like a Pied Piper. I, <laughs> I was stimulated and interested and fascinated. And that helped really give me a will to be myself because I was always considered an oddball that didn't quite fit into the mold of every other woman in the room. So when artists like David Bowie, Alice Cooper, Mark Boland, even early Roxy Music came along, I thought, well, that's where I belong. It's interesting, isn't it, really? Because an awful lot of this, of course, is about listening to yourself. I mean, having that sort of inner, it's not just a gut feeling, but it's, it's, it's truly listening to every fibre of your body as to what it is that makes you, you. And I think, you know, going back again to, to seeing you on the television, you know, as a young person, this was really quite explosive. And for me as a percussion player, where it is still quite male dominated and certainly was growing up, you know, and the fact that you, in a way, you know, sexually, you see yourself as a girl, a boy, a, a, you know, a, a man, a woman, just everything, whatever needs to be expressed, you allow this freedom to come out of your, your very, very being. And some people are quite protective about that because they're worried about however other people might, you know, view it. Oh, I didn't have to worry about that <laughs> at all. Uh, I, I was always the joker in the pack, uh, and that was fine. I always astonished people, and going back to school days, I, I really wanted singing lessons, so I took up opera. And my wonderful voice teacher, Miss Cullum, who passed away very early on um, in my teens, she taught me Tosca, the Dischlieb, I sang in German. And you've got to bear in mind, this was the dyslexic in the school. Absolutely, <laughs> incredible. But that was the last time I stood still to sing. And I realised that within rock, the pulse of 4-4 four, four timing, or even the waltz of 3-4 timing, is so in my body that I find it impossible to stand still when I sing and I so admire people who can be still in their body because I rarely am and you've talked about this explosion of movement well part of that is me keeping time mm. yeah it's it's fascinating that because in a way I find in my own situation that I can move I think fairly naturally when I have sticks or mallets in my hand. But if you ask me to move and remove those items, I yeah. just wouldn't know what to really do with myself, you know, with my body and, and, and how to really move. But, but you just seem to have this, you, the air, the space, the acoustic is, is, is your prop in a way. I want to flag up a story that isn't about me, but it is about lockdown. My husband, Robert Fripp of the band King Crimson, supposedly the inventor of prog rock. I taught him to dance in lockdown. And this is a man who can play guitar 11 notes a second in timings like 18-7. Mm -hmm. He cannot dance. He doesn't know his left from his right. <laughs> Take the guitar out of his hands and he is 
not a musician. And I think this proved to me above all that absolutely everyone can learn to play something if they know how their brain has been wired and how your brain can sabotage you. And this leads on to the fact that in the last seven weeks, I've picked up a guitar for the first time in my life and started playing it because I found a teacher who can see how my brain has been wired to sabotage my hands. And I think this is how I view dyslexia. We've been wired to sabotage ourselves and we can find a way around it. And getting back to this, this whole thing about movement and filling the air, filling the space, I find it very, very strange when people are still and it doesn't match the drama of the music. Mm. For me, music is so enormously expressive and takes us beyond our natural language that I'm surprised people aren't doing acrobatics while they (laughs) listen to music. (laughs) And it's funny you you say that because I remember as a a music student in, in London and when we were asked to give a recital, we were actually informed I'll say that as to how to walk on stage yes how to smile so do not show your teeth just sort of you know curve your lips a little bit and then take a bow but it had to be at a certain angle and a certain speed and then go to your instrument and we were all so worried about this walk on and the bow and the smile that in fact it was quite a relief just to sit down at our instrument or stand up and play something because suddenly we were free you know so a teacher then couldn't really say well you must play like this or like that you know you're suddenly free with your instrument and then you could just kind of be yourself but it was so interesting how in a way you just had these clones lined up all walking on at the same speed smiling in the same manner and completely nervous and completely unnatural in a way so so what you're saying is 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 fascinating but I suppose it goes back. I mean, the very fact that you can remember your teacher's names and for them to realize how important it is that we've all got this story to tell. And what is your story? What is, you know, another pupil's yeah. story and, and so on? I'd like to pick up on what you've just said about being taught to walk on stage because I find it impossible to walk on stage in front of an audience and not be affected by the audience. Yes. Every audience is utterly unique. They breathe differently. They sound different. They respond differently. And I have songs that have been with me for 40 years, and those songs have changed those people's lives. But Also, I constantly write. And in the last two years, I've added new songs to my sets. And one is a song called Dance in the Hurricane, which I wrote with my co-writer, Simon Darlow, two years ago about losing our parents, but still being connected to our parents. And I now open with that song. And when I walk on stage, I hear grown men shout in appreciation 
that this song has allowed them to feel grief and to feel the joy of connection and to be able to express that even though they are men. And I experienced the audience so intensely that I play songs in my set so the audience will give me some energy. And what I mean by that is when you're on stage for an hour and a half performing with the energy that I do, and I'm now 62, there are moments where I have to take a breath in that hour and a half. And there are moments when I know the audience will pay back. And what I mean by that is that if I play Hurricane or a song called Sensational, which is doing very well at the moment, or It's a Mystery, the audience will, like a battery, pay me back. They fill me up again. Mm, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because, in a way, so many times we are often asked, well, what would you like an audience to feel? Or do you pay attention to, to the audience? Or, you know, and it's they are so much part of a performance and you've just said it so eloquently. I mean, it's such an important lesson in a way, you know, the audience gives that live, live energy. And you, you must see it and feel it because when you are doing these huge drums and and (laughs) I I, I don't mean this in a patronizing way, you are stunningly beautiful. And, And when you play these huge drums, I mean, the audience must be in ecstasy. Well, it's, I found that during this whole year, not giving any live performances whatsoever has obviously changed what I'm focusing on or or the dynamic of of what I do. Um, But I've not had that feeling that I want to give performances virtually because I really need to see people. I really need to, you know, smell, touch, use every sense possible because they will change the interpretation. And as you say, you know, things happen in that performance that even if you have an imagined audience, you know, even if you're in the privacy of your own four walls and you're imagining being in an outdoor venue or in a theatre or in a studio or wherever it might be, still you, you, you can't get all of your senses in gear than when you're absolutely right there with them. And I, just... I never feel more alive than when I'm in front of an audience. And as I'm taking those breaths and I'm pitching that note, I, I think some people call it yoga <laughs> or, or meditation. But for me, performance is that time where I'm honouring my body through every sense. Mm, that's a great way of putting it. You know, it, that respect that you have if your own machine, you know, because yes. your own body has to function in order for you to give and then to receive in a way. And I just wonder that during the past year, because everything has really changed for us all, have you noticed any differences in the mechanics of your body from a creative point of view? You know it's what I mean? A- Yes, I do. And it's a wonderful question. When we first went into lockdown, April 2020, I spent three weeks praying. 
And I, I live on the River Avon and I go down to the river at six in the morning, sometimes earlier. And I would pray for about three hours because we just didn't know the nature of the beast. Then when we hit the second lockdown, I was far more prepared and I started writing an album I'm about to finish in the next two months called Posh Pop. It's been a phenomenally creative time. And this past year, because I've not been doing contracts and traveling eight hours a day and doing two hour shows, I've had this time to rediscover my original creativity to go back to why I did this in the first place and this came from a lot of contemplation from a lot of the fact that I'm 62 and time is finite and using this as an opportunity to prepare to what I think is going to be one of the most phenomenal times of my life and all our lives is when we conquer this and we're out of lockdown I think we are going to be running a marathon as performers so in the lockdown not only have I been doing my album I've been doing artwork but I've also been broadcasting via Facebook and YouTube and I totally understand why you wouldn't want to do an online concert but what I've done is I've created uh, Toya at Home on Saturdays which is about my history for the diehard fans Toya and Robert Agony Aunts which is phenomenally important and we started that because I was dealing with a promoter, a male promoter who had a history of attempting suicide. And I feel men need to be heard with an unconditional voice. They, they so often have to be ultra tough and kind of ultra achievers. And with Agony Arts, which I do with my husband, we take in questions of, of, from men, women, them, they, us, all genders, and we try and address from our point of view a new way of these people seeing themselves mm. in a hope that it, it fights off any thoughts of suicide. And then our Sunday lunches are pure fun. Brilliant. And I create those with sound because you've got two people locked in the same house with one hell of a history, <laughs> my husband and me. So guitar and voice. And I secretly introduce into those a lot of colour because I believe the colours we live with are as equally vibrant and vibrative, if that's such a word, as my favourite note, which is A, my favourite chord, which is E. I mean, these colours all have musical sounds mm -hmm. and I try and bring it all together in these 90 second films. And they're absolutely brilliant I have to say you know they, they really are and I think what's astonishing is is the chemistry where you can be in a very familiar place such as your kitchen but yet the chemistry whilst keeping this kind of artistic integrity but yet there's a real twinkle with it you know yeah. it's, it's, it's quite fascinating and and I think it's really inspiring you know, hopefully it's really inspiring it's interesting you know when you mention about the color and so on because often we do think about musical sounds as particular color I don't personally do that myself or I don't really recognize such as pink which is what you're wearing now with a particular 
Uh, or th- this is a blue topaz. It's on me all the time. And that is a D major for me. Ah, interesting. That is yes. so beautiful, actually. Mm. Yes. And, and the pink, I, I, I'm in the studio after um, with being with you. And the pink is I'm going to be writing lyrics and we sing as we write. So my co-writer and I, Simon Adalo, we go into the studio with nothing. He stands at a keyboard or a guitar. I'm at the mic and line by line, word by word, we build a song. And then the following day, we record it in full. It's a beautiful way to work. But the reason I'm in this bright cerise pink is it energizes through the eyes. It just energizes my thought processes. Mm. And when you said earlier that you go to the river and sit by the river and you you pray for three hours, um, give or take. So what does this mean? What is the process of this? Do you literally sit there or...? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the three hours was purely exclusive to that first lockdown. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of time in that lost, lo- first lockdown. Uh, the most important th- thing for me when I sit by the river is I tune into nature. We, we have kingfishers, we've got swans, ducks, we've even got cormorants, we have owls, we have birds of prey, and we have the most enormous fish, mink, we've even got an otter. And I just sit there and observe and observe, and eventually I'm in a place where I can just be me, and I can allow my thoughts to just move freely. I always have a notepad and pen with me because you know this, ideas come up in the most inconvenient places. And I tend to do an awful lot of writing that I then discard. I leave it for a couple of weeks and then I revisit that notepad and think, oh my goodness, I I can use that. That's incredible. During the year, we have lost a lot of people and it's not been to COVID. And I've lost two major musicians in my life, in my band. And not COVID, they they, they all were pre-suffering cancer. So a lot of my thoughts have been about how can I honour their lives? How can I honour what they taught me? How can I honour working with them? And one of them is just to be super dedicated to who I'm, what I have been for the last 40 years and to be very pure to that. So when I sit by the riverbank, I try and not be the needy, egotistical Toya Wilcox that the agents get. Um, I just try and be something that can be ultra creative and can honour everything that's been and gone. If that makes sense. It makes total sense, Toya. It's just so brilliantly... Put and and it's a really inspiring thought for us all to think about. I mean, the, the conversation about you know losing people that are close to you, and this whole year, you know, so many families have experienced loss and have yes. experienced a landscape that they were simply not expecting. And the fact that we can all put almost a date on when that happened, you, you know what I mean? It's quite extraordinary yes. as opposed to it being a, a certain period, but an actual date last March that that our lives really did change. But it has allowed us to open up 
our emotions, yeah. to listen to each other. The story of our next door neighbour is important. Yes, people need to be seen, heard and acknowledged. And that's what community does. And ironically, we're having to function in a new way as a community. But people still need to be seen, heard and listened to. It, it's, it, it's been very, very challenging. And so many of us have been affected so dramatically by loss but also loss of income. And then with you and I and our industry, everyone from the roadies through to the sound technicians, the light technicians, uh, the performers, the venues, everyone has lost their identity through their job. And I think music and sound and communication has never been more important, which is why I'm very, very happy to do these films and also to register their reaction and how people react to them. Uh, One that Robert and I did that was actually serious was a version of Heroes, which Robert was the original guitarist on with Bowie. And we did this to celebrate VE Day. And at the very end, we held up little notes saying, we love you, Dame Vera Lynn. We love you, Captain Tom Moore. And it was just us seeing and acknowledging and saying thank you to these amazing generations and I would say the last year has helped us see that we're made up of generations not just teens and 20 year olds we've all had remarkable lives and we all have stories to tell that that's so true there has been a kind of real acknowledgement and and listening and open up to our older generation, for sure. I mean, obviously, Sir Captain Tom has been an extraordinary example of that, but so many others. And funnily enough, you know, in my own situation, I actually haven't seen my mum for over a year now. And she went into a care home on Saturday. And, you know, my brothers who are up in Scotland with her were not able or allowed to to go into the home with her. But what I found in, you know, these sort of 48 or 72 hours now that she's been in the home is that she's expressing herself quite differently than when she was in the four walls of her own home. And a lot of that is sort of reminiscing of her past because she she feels as though now she's you know she's entered this other chapter of her life and there's almost this need for her to think about some of the 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 things which have happened to her in the in the past you know this this different environment has has somehow you know created this feeling in her and she must have been born after the war just at the end of the war, just at the, the, the end of so the war, she, during she, the war, but close to the she end. She would remember rationing and she would remember... Definitely. ...the lack of materials, the lack of clothes. I have this feeling that people that were old enough to remember the war know what this past year has been about. I think that's really, really true, and and it's interesting when some of some of the that generation have been asked, well, has this past year been more challenging than perhaps during the war? And some have said yes, actually, because of the isolation, and some have said no, absolutely not. The war years were much more 
challenging. You know, we've got the technology now to at least connect with people, um, even if it's not, you know, physically uh, feeling someone's hand or, or face or giving a hug or whatever. But actually, yeah. you know, can you imagine if we were going through this past year without Zoom, Skype, email, texting, it, you name it? It wouldn't be possible. It just wouldn't be possible. It, it would be totally inhuman. And for your mother making this very, very important journey, which really is the next stage of, of mm. her life, her to be doing this, I mean, she knows you're there with her. She knows you're thinking of her. Mm. But it's it's the physical touch as mm. well. And one remembers that is the same for, for most people around the world at the moment. And that that's... In, for me, as a creative writer and as a performer, I feel incredible responsibility to try and bring some some dialogue and some language into people's lives through my work that acknowledges that, mm. acknowledges that incredible human need uh, that we we need connecting and we need to remember what human touch is like. Yeah, it's, I can't imagine it to be honest. No, I know, and it's it. One of the things she mentioned um, yesterday, actually, because she doesn't understand that she has to be being a new resident of the of the care home. She has to isolate for uh, fourteen days. And so she's seeing people walking up and down the corridor and wondering, well, why aren't they coming in to say hello or why, you, you, you know, and well, they're not allowed to, first of all, because, I mean, she's a very sociable person. But And so she wants to be back home because she knows that family members are allowed to go in. And so she doesn't understand why people can't come in. And so it is a, a really interesting dynamic. But this is where technology, um, yes. through the help of the home, obviously, can allow at least for her to see people that she recognises. And hopefully the stimulus of music to listen to as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you know, going back to your journey, the longevity and the relevance of everything you've done is, is really remarkable because... And again, that's a form of listening to what's going on around in the world. You know, what is happening right now, as opposed to looking back and, and thinking, well, that's how I did things then. And that's what I'm going to try and do now because it happened to be successful then. But you really always seem to look forward and be present. In my world, change is incredibly important. I obviously do lots of 80s festivals and I adore doing them. And I have never, ever got bored of singing any of the songs that started my career 40 years ago. Again, because the audience reinterpret the song back at me. But I find that in my world, dealing with modern contemporary music you continually have to change you have to evolve you have to move on I don't like written formulas within popular music so I'm always looking for new sounds things that inspire me and move me and also the importance of how younger generations review and renew music it's always mm. utterly fascinating and there's some movements I will not connect with because it's just not in me but I think in lockdown there's been a lot of incredibly 
inventive new music coming out. Uh, I always cite a band called um, Bring Me the Horizon because they are what I would like to be um, as a woman. They're all men, but they are <laughs> what I would like to be. Uh, it, it's everything they do breaks the rules and invents a new sound. Uh, and that for me, even as a 62 year old, is what creativity is about. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I suppose in my own situation, being a percussion player, you know, you take an instrument and you think, ah, you know, how many ways can this be played? Or what would happen if I popped it on top of this other instrument? And how might it resonate? And so on. So there is this constant exploration. And what's so interesting about you is that you do, in a way, see the world as your your springboard of, of ideas. So you're looking, you know, ahead, but you're also recognizing what the younger generation are doing and how they're consuming things. And part of that is a very conscious effort. Uh, and I really, really don't want to sound pretentious here is to live a creative life. So for me, everything should be approached with the intention of it being a creative experience from making your lunch, your breakfast, your supper, to snacking, to choosing what you want. It should be your creative experience. Mm. And where I'm a little at odds with things is where the internet chooses lists for you. Viewing lists, listening lists. Uh, I'm a little at odds with that because I believe that we should all search because part of that searching is our learning process. But within the house... Mm. Uh, my husband and I are both Taurians, and what I mean by that is we're both very happy on the sofa. <laughs> and we we fight that. We fight that a lot, and we try and turn everything into a new experience. So we don't repeat ourselves at lunch. We don't repeat ourselves in conversation. <laughs> and when my husband, he did something the other day. Oh, he came in and I was in the middle. My head was in the middle of a lyric in the kitchen. And he said, I've done the washing and I've hung the washing up. And I actually said to him, I am not interested in the washing. And he he was so brilliant. He realized he was interrupting a process. And we, we can do that. And it can be quite brutal. Uh, but I, I'm determined we have a creative life. And... While I remember this, it's a slight tangent, but this is one of my most envious moments of lockdown. Last Saturday, I needed to ask him something. He was in his study listening to a piece of classical music. I opened the door and he was in a state of ecstasy listening to this music. And I was jealous and I said to him, I don't get the time for that listening experience. And <laughs> you haven't told me what this piece of music is. And bless him, he set a speaker up in my art room because I, 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 I do art. That's been my income in lockdown. And he set a speaker up and hooked me up to his playlist. Oh. Uh, it, it was it wouldn't have happened any other way. So, you know, listening, it's so important. It's so incredible that and it's so important to to have this kind of open, open understanding, though, in, in a relationship like this, you know, where you can just so completely and utterly honestly say, you know, what the situation is and, and, and then build the bridges in order to, to make it a shared experience. Yes, I, I, 
<laughs> we did. We, I, I mean, it can sound really brutal. We did have a sit down moment where <laughs> about about four weeks into lockdown and I said to him, I cannot have you tell me every time you make a cup, a cup of coffee what you're doing. I, I just I will not survive this. Uh, so <laughs> the water goes in the cup, the coffee goes he needs to learn sign language and then he can show yes. you and be quiet at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's such an interesting dynamic because, of course, you've been together for a long, long time. You know, it, it, it's and, and that's sometimes fairly unusual in the in the entertainment business. You know, it can be very challenging. But, you know, when you first got together, though, the dynamics of two extraordinarily creative people, I mean, how did this sort of manifest itself for, for such two big forces to come together, but yet be completely independent? Uh, well, in the beginning, for the first 20 years, we oh. got married around, uh, we've been together 35 years, but that first 20 years, we would not have survived without the telephone. Ah, okay. Just, you know, we just would not have survived. I insisted I was called twice a day, and that's a reassurance that I was still in his mind. He, he was living in America. I was living in the UK. It wasn't ideal. Um, I was super famous when we got married. And then very slowly, um, as the marriage evolved into the first five years, the, the press decided I was the little wife at home and he was the superstar. I found that very difficult mm. and it in fact spurred me on to work even harder and to be even more prolific and more outlandish in my choices of jobs. Mm. Uh, I was you know, working at the Chichester Theatre, I was mm. touring Taming of the Shrew, I did Therese Rakan at the Nottingham Playhouse, went back to the National making movies and albums. It just made me more determined. Where my husband is phenomenally interesting is his career is still based on the first albums he made from 1967 through to 1974 and he is still a worldwide star because of those albums my most famous catalogue was recorded between 77 and 84 and I've not had access to that catalogue until a year ago and it airbrushed me musically out of history which meant I had to do as many live concerts as much tv as much visibility programming as I could and suddenly a record company got access to the back catalogue and I entered the charts again last December in the top 40 because of demand so if your back catalogue is so vital to your career and you don't have access to it you have to find a way of surviving and that's what I did. It's amazing isn't it and and you know when you're looking into an artist's career you you're not always privy obviously to that journey and the 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 back room as it were of that journey but surely this past year the industry has recognised that the artists really must take control of yes. the material that they produce, you know, because a lot of musicians and various artists of, of one sort or another, you know, have 
spent so much of their their time, years and years and years, you know, specializing and playing an instrument or, or or something, but there isn't a plan B, there isn't a plan C, there isn't a plan D, and there's yes. there's really very little security there. And I think that we do have to recognize that if something is recorded, that we have some kind of comeback on that. We we do have some kind of reward when it's yes. being played and used and so on. It, that's all a bit of a wasp nest at the moment because of copyright laws being addressed. Mm. But what I would say is that you will always have contrived artists because the mainstay of record labels is those artists that initially sell over a million uh, items of product very, very quickly. And then the, the industry moves on to the next contrived mm. artist. But where we need to protect ourselves, and I feel that I have been quite successful in this and all thanks to the internet and thanks to YouTube. And you will know this, Evelyn, that generationally we mature beautifully as musicians. So I started in my teens. Every decade I have improved. Every decade I've reinvented. And every decade I've done original creation. And if the the big big corporates aren't interested in that my audience is yeah. and the blessing has been the internet in this year this exceptional year the internet has been my weapon of mass destruction against corporate record companies because it proves that if you have originality and if you have a talent a genuine talent you have an audience mm, absolutely it's it's so it's so fascinating what you're saying there and absolutely important for us all to to digest that. And for me, you know, all of the journey that you've had, there's absolutely always that distinctive stamp mark of Toya. I mean, it, no matter how much reinvention goes in there, you keep this core, core aspect of you and it just goes back to that listening to what is right for you listening to to your audience you know to people how they're interacting with what you do and as opposed to putting yourself into a situation that that simply isn't natural I, I totally agree. It's very hard to do something when it's not natural to you. And I always say to young people, I, I'm given the opportunity in front of live audiences a lot to address the fact that the first voice that comes into our head is our true instinctive voice. Mm -hmm. And we're not often encouraged to trust that. And I always say, trust your instinct. And I have lived my life listening to that instinctive voice that is always against the odds of other people's opinion. And I just stand by my instincts. And also when someone is telling you to do something and you know that it is a mistake and it's their mistake, sometimes I will just do it uh, to be very stubborn and, and uh and just to prove a point. Mm. But I always say, look, if I do this, you are cutting off the potential of this. If we do this, the potential is greater. And if that person still wants to draw the short straw, then let them experience it. We all learn by our own mistakes. But my biggest lesson I can teach anyone is listen to yourself. 
Thank you so much, Toya. Really, it's just been such a pleasure. What I'd love to do is, I'm just thinking about your, um, on a fun note, your yes. Sunday lunches with yourself and Robert. And I decided to fish out um, an instrument that uh, is called a pancake drum. Yes. Or a fan drum. And I thought, okay, well, maybe you could do something in the kitchen with a pancake drum. It's obviously, it's it's a flat drum. This is actually a Japanese drum called an Uchiwa Daiko. But I thought, well, maybe you could do a sketch with Robert in your kitchen using a pancake drum. Uh, or there's a, a smaller one here. Reach over. There's a smaller one that's easy, more easy to, to manipulate. Or you could use these wonderful African bowls with beads on them, and yes. uh, which sometimes people have in their kitchen. You can rattle wow. around and play various beats. Or there's a little small one here. <laughs> they so are you, beautiful. <laughs> so you can play your kitchen. Well, yes, I, I think we'd have to use our pots and pans because those beautiful <laughs> instruments I would damage. I'm so ham-fisted. Oh, where you go. <laughs> <laughs> They're there to be create, creative on. <laughs> Fabulous. I'm afraid I'm only capable of 4-4 timing, which would be very frustrating if you were to join us. But thank you so so much for such an enlightening conversation I really appreciate it thank you and it's so wonderful to see you again <laughs> so as you can probably tell I'm not a Michael Parkinson or anything like that so. <laughs> you, you are brilliant you no. are brilliant <laughs> I'm so used to being interviewed you know myself that I, 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 I interviewed you it, well, at the I, end of the 80s. Well, I do remember something that we did, but I couldn't remember the exact detail. You were breathtaking. It, it was <laughs> an art. I think it might have been the science of sound for Radio 4. Oh. And you were, you were the first female percussionist I ever met. <laughs> it, it was breathtaking. <laughs> That's so oh. funny. I'd like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.